Welcome everybody to this afternoon's webinar, uh, Jewish Spiritual Care Perspectives from the Field. I'm very happy to have our three guests here uh, who are going to give us um, a variety of perspectives, but I think have broad applicability for a lot of you who are in the audience, I know. Uh, so I'm very happy to have them here today. Let me just offer two reminders before we get started. First, this is being recorded. And so don't worry if you, you know, if you have to step away and you miss a point or you need to leave early or whatever, you will get a recording of this in the next couple of days and you can go back and watch however often you want. So don't worry, it's being recorded. Second, when you get an email with that recording, there's also a link to a survey about your experience here. It takes maybe a minute. Please fill that out. That helps us to plan future events. So let me introduce our guests and then I will get out of the way. Rabbi Lynn Lieberman is community chaplain at Jewish Family Services of St. Paul. Rabbi Jessica Schaffrin is manager of pastoral care at SSM Health Cardinal Glennon in St. Louis. And Rabbi Michelle Stern is chaplain and manager of religious life at CHE Senior Life. And I think you're in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken, right? Or outside Chicago? Very well. All right. Well, thank you. Welcome to all of you, Lynn. I'm going to turn it to you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, and I just want to say a word as the Jewish community chaplain here in the Twin Cities, um, the job affords me the opportunity to work with people that are unaffiliated, marginalized, left out, off the sides of the Jewish community as a whole. Um, so I end up going into a lot of interesting places that um, where people are not members of congregations and otherwise. It's a real privilege to do this work, in addition to some other chaplaincy work that I do. So what I want to speak about for the next uh, just short while are um, some of the ideas and understandings of death and dying in the Jewish tradition. And uh, these will be sort of in large, broad strokes, um, hopefully to give you enough information, maybe to say I've got more that I need to know and want to know, but that you can at least have some more tools in your tool bucket. Uh, so the first thing I always like to start with is that Judaism is um, compelled to seek um, uh, all opportunities of living that we can. That's our first motivation. And so we move toward those things that continue and enhance and are meaningful in our lives. Um, I always feel like we just jump into this. So what happens at the end? But really, we're much more passionate about and worried about how can I may have a meaningful experience in the days that I have ahead of me? But nevertheless, um, we're all sharing the human trajectory of coming toward the end of our lives. And so what happens when one falls ill? From the Jewish tradition, we actually share a common message. You don't have to be a chaplain to do this. This is actually an incumbent idea upon all Jews that we want to not leave somebody who is ill alone and that we have a, an idea out of Jewish tradition called a mitzvah or a commandment to visit the sick. And in Hebrew, we call that ikur cholim. The idea here is our social obligation to help lift up one who is feeling ill. And I think as chaplains, we probably all could, could resonate with the idea that when, when we get sick, people tend to close in, right? We, we tend to draw in. And so our, our hope is, our fervent hope by, by participating in Bikur Halim is to alleviate some of the distress that also accompanies illness, uh, which um, is a very big part of the work I do, which is the distress of loneliness um, and to, to lift up the spirit of the individual. But then what happens when the illness does turn um, in a direction toward uh, leading toward the end of life? Um, in that space of time, 
our first premonition, just as I began with, is really the idea that uh, we have an obligation to heal. And we, we move toward healing and we seek opportunities to heal. Um, sometimes there are diseases and circumstances that have a clear presentation that there, there is a more imminent end than the uh, diseased person or the sick person is expecting. And we have to follow with, <clears throat> through, excuse me, with that trajectory and how to support them. In doing so, a few kind of basic principles. So if, you're, if, a, if a Jewish person is coming toward their end, first basic principle is that we want to not seek to hasten the death, right? We want to consider the value and the meaning of the days that they still have ahead. Um, can they be days of hope? Can they be days of purpose? Can they be days of meaningfulness? And again, speaking to an audience of colleagues, we know that sometimes the challenges at the end of life are not so much the worry for dying is as much as the process and le unleft business, for example, the desire to mend a broken relationship, to not leave this world knowing that they, a person has not had a chance to be grateful to somebody who's been important to them or to simply try to repair uh, a sadness. And so in that frame of time, it is important to help support somebody and encourage that possibility. Um, if, uh, if at all possible, we wanna be realistic. It is interesting that the Jewish prayer that we have for healing is one that is uh, done in Hebrew, but it is um, at the core starts with refuah tanefesh in Hebrew, refuah taguf. There's an intentionality there. Refuah tanefesh means the healing of the soul to be followed by refuah taguf, the healing of the body. Sometimes the reality is, is that the body cannot be healed, but that there's always room potential for healing of the soul those relationships, the sense of well-being, the sense of okayness, the sense of peacefulness that one could have at the end of their life. And in all the best ways that we do that moment as chaplains, they would pertain to Judaism is to invite life review and to think about what things were important, family, friends, community, uh, acts of righteousness in this world, et cetera. As the uh, life would come to an end, we do have a prayer that is said, it's called the Vidui, and I think a colleague is going to say something about this as well. Um, the Vidui is a prayer that is not similar in the Catholic tradition of the sacraments of the dying. In fact, um, there are a lot of people who aren't even aware of this particular prayer. When I share this idea uh, with uh, people who are dying or getting close to that space, it does not have to be done on the deathbed. It can be done in time in advance, is to talk about the same sort of concepts and ideas that we have at the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, which is Yom Kippur, which is asking God for forgiveness. Should there be things needing to be forgiven? And the fact is, is that while it's, it's uh, helpful and wonderful that a rabbi could be available to do this, um, somebody literate in Judaism is also available to do it. If the uh, ill person is able to say this prayer, they would say their own vidui, or it is said on their behalf. Um, and in that dying process, our chief goal is to not leave somebody alone, if at all possible. Under these circumstances, the last couple of years um, through COVID, I myself too have, uh, I also work in hospitals, um, have had to stay with people on the phone in that process with uh, those um, incredible nurses and other medical caregivers in the room, as I've said this prayer and or have sort of been present as we have um, with others whose lives have come to an end. Um, what are some of the considerations though? So that at, toward the end of life, there are 
um, especially we've uh, really had to confront some of these challenges here in this era of COVID, some of the considerations of uh, what are appropriate choices for a person toward the end of life. And again, I'm doing a sort of a large topic on this. There are details to go with this. And whenever I stop at this point, I say uh, my favorite phrase, which is, please ask if they have a rabbi, because you want to consult that rabbi. We have different faith tradition branches in, our, in, in Judaism from um, an Orthodox perspective, which is uh, most um, to, the, to the right in terms of the uh, interpretation, um, and then through the conservative and the reform. So you want to try to find their faith leader that could help answer their questions. And I will always add too that so that that person is available to help support them and the rest of their family ongoing. Unfortunately, this is where I step in often as a community chaplain where I meet with people who don't have that faith leader. So perhaps in the communities where you are, you could have a Jewish community chaplain who you could call upon to help you in these moments. And there are terrific resources as well. So uh, please be aware of those possibilities. But what happens? Here's a few things to know. First of all, we do believe in uh, Judaism and it is appropriate to, to do advanced care planning. And it's uh, hopefully something that's not left to the last uh, moments of somebody's life, but that they really take that time. The most important part as one who does this service in my community is that conversation with their loved ones, their family. So please encourage uh, advanced care planning. Um, it is appropriate for uh, patients to make their choices. Um, we uphold individual choice, hopefully within the parameters of Jewish tradition but um, it's not something that somebody else has to say to them. And that rabbi hopefully would come in and also give that guidance as well to say, what's important to you, right? Kind of in the, in the language of advanced care planning. Um, and um, there are options along the way. So I'll just mention here too, that organ donation is also permitted in Judaism. And uh, at least here, I would say where I live in Minnesota now, both these things are on your driver's license. You can have them listed there that I have, that I'm an organ donor and that I also have advanced care uh, medical directives. And so please consult those um, if available. One of the biggest questions that uh, comes up with the greatest urgency is what happens in terms of if there's a, a, a moment in time where a, a determination needs to, made, needs to be made about uh, um, termination of life support. And I'm not gonna be able to do justice to this topic, plus the fact, which is always um, the thing about people who are speaking on behalf of one faith tradition is that we have multitude of opinions. So I go back to my, please consult their rabbi, it's very important, or at least a rabbi that represents their stated faith tradition if you're able to, their, their branch. But I'm gonna give you a general language around this uh, so that you have some general insight around this. As I said, when I began, uh, from the Jewish perspective, we kind of balance this notion of, are we extending life or prolonging the illness, the inevitable? So in making a choice around termination of life uh, support is if we continue to provide these dramatic efforts of care for this patient, and the outcome of that is, even if we're a little unsure at the moment, is that the doctor's best understanding of that is we are going to be able to bring them back into a fullness of life with some sense of meaningfulness. And this is where we hope that advanced care directives have been put into place so we understand something more about that, about the individual. But if that's going to help them back into a life that they can continue forward, that's permitted. 
and in fact encouraged. You want to do that. So as a simple example, for example, for uh, a traumatic moment is uh, somebody who's not certain should they should they be put on a respirator to help them breathe. If that machine would bridge them from a significant medical crisis through a moment of healing toward well-being, that would be a yes. That would be a yes. However, the question is, um, is that what the person wants? Do they understand that? And then if we put them on to a ventilator, for example, to which best medical understanding is that they will not come off that ventilator. They maybe need to stay on a modified version of that and have to stay in uh, extreme care for some lengthy period of time because inevitably the body is breaking down and the body's natural end to its life in this world is happening. That's a decision that can be made and they don't need to go on the ventilator. And again, I'm gonna say, this is a 30,000 mile up view of this. This is a very rich topic, a lot of space for conversation and nuancing through. Um, but I wanna make sure my colleagues have time to share their wisdom with you as well. So perhaps we'll have time afterwards to have a few questions around it. Um, the decisions are made per person. And I, and I wanna say, we don't have blanket situations here in Judaism. We have a way of understanding this decision-making called halakha, which is a, a Hebrew word. And it actually in translation means, um, comes from the word to walk, right? The way that we go. What is the way that we wanna go? What's the best way that we can go forward? And I like to think of it as the way that we go in life, right? Uh, how do we move through life? In the last few minutes, I'm gonna leave that very meaty topic and just talk about a couple other aspects, which are what happens when we have a, a Jewish um, patient who has died. Some of the care and respect that we afford them happens in the hospital setting in the immediacy if that's where they have died, but certainly takes place afterwards. And so I'll just mention a few of these things. Um, in the moment of death in the hospital, we, to the best that we can, with regard to the medical necessities of the moment, we leave the body undisturbed. The medical necessities are that if there are tubes and other mechanical devices that need to be removed, then they should be removed. Um, in the Jewish tradition, we prepare our deceased bodies for burial by a special group called a Hebra Kedisha. I'm honored to be on the one in my community. And this is a group of volunteers in the community that come together to ritually cleanse uh, and purify and dress the deceased uh, body, uh, even placing it into the casket for burial into the ground. So some things can be done in the hospital to prepare for that but otherwise the deceased um, is as they have died. Um, if it's possible, the deceased should not be left alone, if that's possible, until they are picked up by the funeral home or whatever the next um, step is with regard to the hospital rules. Um, this actually became a very interesting, this is an aside story, an interesting issue here in the Twin Cities um, because of COVID and the necessity of the beds and we couldn't leave the deceased in the beds. So we had to be very creative and thoughtful and still filled with a dignity for the deceased in making some important choices with moving them sooner than maybe we would have under other circumstances. We do not do routine autopsies. This is something I always encourage chaplains to be aware of, to again, be aware that um, uh, they are done if the state requires it. So if there was a significant reason for this death that something has to be discovered, uh, maybe it was uh, by virtue of violence, uh, a gunshot or such, and there would be a requirement they might want to do an autopsy. But otherwise, generally speaking, we do not uh, prefer to have autopsies done. Um, and also organ donation, as I mentioned before, is absolutely 
uh, supported and done, um, and hopefully something that can uh, be a gift to those um, afterwards. Um, I mentioned very quickly the funeral traditions of just, uh, there, there are several, but just a few that you might want to know about with regard to uh, the body is uh, cared for by a Hebra Kadisha. Um, we prefer in-ground burial. The reality is, I'm just, just going to be fair here to say this, the reality is, is that more and more um, Jews are exposed to the other cultures of the world, and so we are finding more and more conversations around cremation. Um, here again, I would urge you to bring a rabbi in and, and have a conversation with the family, um, and if not, uh, having had pre-made decisions with the individual themselves. And as you might know, and many people are aware, that Jewish funerals tend to take place fairly quickly after death. Um, there's a long history for this. It still is the case. Um, so uh, if, you're, if, um, if you see sort of a hubbub of action and activity and desire, um, that is uh, sometimes what that is related to, is that uh, within uh, 24, 48, maybe three days uh, of time, we try to uh, take care of our Jewish deceased and bury them. So I'm going to pause there, um, and thanks. Thank you very much, Lynn. So much rich information there um, that's, that's really immediately applicable. Um, I really appreciate it. Michelle, let's turn to you next. Okay, so I am someone who organizes my thoughts this way. So this is, <laughs> so um, if I can do this. Okay, so um, something that my colleague talked about was the idea of, um, let's see if we can make this happen. If not, it's not gonna work and I'll just, you won't get to see it. Um, why isn't it working? Okay, hold on one more time. We're gonna try this one more time. And if not, we won't do it. Um, Everyone has experienced this. It's never a pleasant feeling, but it happens to everybody. <laughs> it's loading, it's loading. Okay. Okay. So let me get out of that and let me get in here and let me share this. And then we're going to hello. Hello. All right. Let's try this again. There we go. Hopefully. Okay. So, and if it doesn't work, I'm just going to keep talking. So I'm something that my colleague said was that the, um, you know, we try and think about the life and how it counts. And so here's a reference to Psalm 90, numbering our days that we like to think about how we live our lives to its fullest. So I am um, the manager of religious life for CJE Senior Life, which is an elder care agency in Chicago. And so I work with older adults. And um, so I thought what we would do is talk about the sort of a Jewish theological framework for aging, um, because we are in the midst in our country in a silver tsunami, as they call it, and also discuss some pastoral issues um, through a Jewish lens, which Lynn has so wonderfully described already some of those things. So I'll skip over the things she's talked about, but add some of my own. So um, as Judaism, many thoughts are based in text. And so this comes from a text from about 1500 years ago called the Talmud. Um, and I'm going to look at two different things. So one is about Abraham. So it says that until Abraham, there was no aging. So meaning that old age was not 
physically recognizable. Um, and so when people wanted to talk to him, they'd go to his son, Isaac, and vice versa. And so Abraham came and prayed for mercy and aging was instituted so that they could see that he is old. Um, and so I like this text because it indicates that Judaism says that when you are aging, you are distinguishable from others. There's something distinguished about you. Um, and in the same text, we get a text about um, the third um, patriarch, um, which is that before Jacob, there was no illness leading up to death. People would just die suddenly. And Jacob came and prayed for mercy and illness was brought into the world. Can you imagine that illness is a merciful thing, but it allows him to prepare for his death. So as Lynn talked about, we support um, advanced planning. And this is a text um, from the Jewish tradition that supports the idea that we should be um, planning and thinking ahead for how we care um, for ourselves and our loved ones and how we can support them. Um, this is from the 16th century in Prague um, by a rabbi named the Maharal. Um, as we age, we become wiser as our physical faculties are weakened, our spiritual faculties gain strength for we acquire the capacity of discernment, spiritual independence or exalted intellect, which flows from the Holy One. In this way, the elder can grasp things that are utterly distinctive. So I like to think that the people that I work with have a great amount of wisdom to share. And part of my job as the chaplain in particularly residential settings, such as assisted living, memory care, independent living, um, is to get people to be um, engaged and tap into their own wisdom and allow them to share it. Um, something also that I think that this text touches upon is the concept in Judaism of Lador Vador, generation to generation, and the sense that for older adults, there's great interest in passing things on, sharing their wisdom or their gifts with others um, so that their legacy carries on. Um, this appears, we see this in the Bible, in the story of Jacob when he dies, which happens to be this week's um, Torah reading, when he dies, um, he says things at his deathbed to his children. And we call, and this is sort of the framework for what we call an ethical will of passing on your values. Um, and finally, um, something that really um, strikes me is in the role of chaplain, I think about how can we honor our older adults and also how we can encourage them to contribute um, and still have meaning and purpose. Those things are so important um, as chaplains to tap into. So from Leviticus, you shall rise before the aged and show deference to the old, this sense of being, um, connected um, to older adults and showing them honor. And also in Psalm 92, the Psalm, um, which in Jewish tradition is considered the Psalm for Shabbat, in old age, they still produce fruit. They are full of sap and freshness. So thinking about older adults as um, not forgotten, but able to contribute. And so thinking about how I can integrate into activities or learning or one-on-one -on -one situations or even rituals, um, how to draw people out and have them continue to contribute. Um, so that's my sort of theolo quick theology from a Jewish lens on aging. But um, for anyone who works in this field knows that there's lots of pastoral issues which um, occur in older adulthood. So there is the loss of independence, 
um, loss of health. Sometimes people have um, changing cognition or loss of memory. Um, they may become very lonely because they have peers and family dying. Um, and family also um, in our world, people move, or people are very mobile. They don't stay necessarily in the same community their whole lives. So people are losing their support systems and sometimes feeling invisible. And Judaism is a very communal um, religion in its practice, meaning, um, and an example of that is we require um, 10 people for a prayer quorum. And many of the rituals are family oriented, such as the observance of a Passover Seder. So if you are an older adult whose support system has left, or you have outlived your support system, um, or your peers, it can be extraordinarily lonely and sometimes even difficult to practice your faith tradition. Um, and I would say that people may feel invisible. Much of synagogue life is focused on raising children, that next generation, and occasionally older adults get sort of lost. Um, so there, it's important to tap into as chaplains. Um, and this is where perhaps a Jewish calendar is an important tool for um, chaplains to have um, handy is that Jewish time is extraordinarily important and grounding to older adults because it's familiar and it happened and it's a it's a separate calendar cycle from the Gregorian calendar. Um, it's mostly lunar based, um, and so Shabbat, the Sabbath, comes every single week. There's certain rituals and prayers connected to particular times of year and certain melodies. I'm not gonna say anyone should, who's not Jewish should become an expert in Jewish melodies, but there are certainly certain prayers that are connected to certain times of year that can be um, very powerful for people to tap into depending on when you are seeing a client, resident or patient. Um, so there's a lot of prescribed time in Judaism and because our um, rituals and prayers are often sung. That's a great sensory piece for um, older adults in terms of drawing them out, um, particularly if they have cognitive impairment. Um, so this will perhaps still be relevant um, in the coming years, but right now it still is quite relevant. We have a number of Holocaust survivors still living in the United States um, and in the world. So for those who may be less familiar with Holocaust survivors, um, they are survivors of a time during World War II when 6 million civilian European Jews were murdered and actually 5 million other people were also killed for various reasons. Um, and people were placed in concentration camps, ghettos, hiding, um, and they had displacement from family and some have tattoos. Um, every person's story is different. But what is key is that people have an experience of loss and trauma, and some may want to talk about it and it becomes very present in their um, presentation of who they are, and others will not want to talk about it. Um, why this is relevant is that this is relevant because if you have a 95-year-old um, Holocaust survivor, so they were a child during the Holocaust, their child, their child might be in their 70s, so also an older adult. Um, who now has secondary trauma. So there's a great amount of secondary trauma among um, the children of survivors, descendants of survivors. So this is a, a, a key piece of 
identity for many Jews um, that you might encounter. Um, and so we may see PTSD, anxiety, and depression. And I will just add a readiness to die. Um, that doesn't mean that they're suicidal, though suicide is definitely high among um, survivors in terms of rates. Um, but I have encountered many survivors in their 90s who because of the sort of blows of aging and how hard aging is um, to be added onto their lifetime of living with trauma, it feels like too much to them. So many people I've talked to are talk about mortality very readily um, and sort of overlapping with this population because some Jews from the former Soviet Union are um, considered Holocaust survivors. Um, also have um, their own trauma from their experience living in the Soviet Union, and so may have mistrust of authority systems and government, including healthcare systems um, in the former Soviet Union. Psychiatry was sort of like a key word for someone being sent away to the KGB. Um, and some may avoid end of life decisions. Um, I will just comment that this is very much centered, or this communal trauma is very much a lived experience for Jews of European descent and not necessarily Jews from other cultural backgrounds. So it's important to think about that, that Jews are exist in all cultures and all over the world and may not have the same kind of trauma, but may also have experienced some kind of trauma of being the other in community um, or being different um, because they are not of the dominant faith um, in the society. So I just wanted to name that. Um, so these are um, two stories from the Jewish tradition. I'll just go quickly um, from the Jewish tradition about um, caregiving. Um, one is about the first one you can read is about how someone comes to realize that they can no longer care for their older adult parent, um, which I know it's always a challenge to think about putting someone in a higher level of care. Um, but um, here is one where, you know, Rav Asi, the he's taking care of his mother and he wants to do everything for her. And then he says, I want a husband who is as handsome as you. And at this point he realized that he was unable to fulfill all her requests. So to me, I see this as permission to at certain times to draw a line and have boundaries and it's okay to ask for help in caring for older adults. Um, and the other one is um, about a man who takes care of his mother also. And he went and laid his two hands under her footsteps so that she walked on them until she reached her bed. Um, this story is considered in the Jewish tradition to be the utmost, like this man did everything for his mother. And so the ancient rabbis praise him. I actually look at this from the perspective of caregiver burnout and also abuse, the potential for elder abuse and also caregiver abuse. And just to be aware that this exists in, you know, if we read the story this way, um, it very much falls in line with some things that we see in our own society in ways that maybe we as chaplains might witness certain things and then need to collaborate with um, other people on a care team um, to um, help support the dynamic of a family. Um, and finally, some extra things about the end of life. Um, some things I know my colleague Lynn has already talked about. Um, so 
at the end of life, the pastoral issue around location of the grave or determining where one's ashes will be have definitely been things that have come up. Again, cremation is not the preferred choice, but it's becoming much more common. And so many people have told me where they want their ashes um, or how they want them to be handled or the disposition of their body um, and why the location of the grave is important. Um, there is a sense of the world to come and afterlife in Judaism. Um, but it's very personal for people and some don't even believe in it. And going there is not dependent on belief or religious practice. Um, my colleague has already talked about Vidui, confessional prayer. And um, again, because I mentioned the sense of generations, there's often anxiety about legacy and what will happen to the next generation and people carrying on someone's legacy. So that's the, or that's the sort of closure work that we can do as chaplains, but it is something that I think because of that um, Jewish traditional piece definitely falls heavy on people's minds when they reach nearing the end of life. Um, so I'm going to stop there. That was a lot, um, but I will pass it on to my colleague. Thank you very much, Jessica. We'll turn to you. And I just want to remind everyone we have we'll have plenty of time for Q and A, so please do use that function or the chat box, whatever you like, uh, and we will turn to that at the end. Jessica, let's turn to you. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Jessica Schaffrin. I am a rabbi and the manager of pastoral care at um, SSM Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital here in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, I am honored to be here today with my colleagues and friends, Lynn and Michelle. And I come from um, a different perspective of pastoral care. And you know, I, I worked in a similar field as Lynn as a community chaplain um, and representing those who did not have affiliations and started here as the manager of the department um, just about almost a year and a half ago. And I speak from the perspective of being a Jewish chaplain in a Catholic health system where every day I walk into work, there's a plaque on the bill on the on the sidewalk as I walk in that says our mission statement. And our mission statement is all about revealing the healing presence of God. So for me, for what I do here every day is always goes back to that statement. And it's a natural um, transition for me as a rabbi to be working in this hospital with this mission. And that's because my theology of pastoral care, um, when I'm standing on one foot, is that we are all made in the image of God. So for me to be able to go into a room um, and provide spiritual support for a patient or a family, or if it's um, speaking with our chaplains here and guiding them and mentoring them through their process, um, through their discernments, through um, their clinical pastoral education, uh, helping to guide them is all because they too are made in the image of God. Um, we also, I also come today to speak about what it's like to be a Jewish presence within an interdisciplinary and multi-faith teams. So when, whenever we as chaplains or rabbis um, are 
communicating or working within our settings, we work together and the relationships that we build are so important and ingrained in who we are. So I just want to step back for that for a minute, because while Michelle was speaking, I had a knock at my door, which is not unusual in a hospital. Um, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, if I was going to open it or not, but it was the president of the hospital. So I opened the door um, and he explained to me that this weekend, um, one of the sisters, her name was Sister Marita Ann, and she was a Franciscan sister who worked here in the hospital, and she died in August, early August, um, and over the weekend, there was her celebration of life, and so she worked here at Cardinal Glennon after being a patient at Cardinal Glennon, and she shares these words. I was just like breezing through them as Michelle was speaking, Michelle was listening to, I swear. Um, and um, she shared, these are her words, and I think it speaks so deeply to what it is that everyone does every day here at Colonel Glennon and just helps to inspire me. Um, so I thought I'd share them with you. And she said, Every day, I had the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives, caring for them in a way that touches their souls. What we do at Glennon is more than a job, more than a career. It is a sacred trust. So I feel like I'm working on her shoulders. And she didn't work as a chaplain. She worked um, in our therapy services. Uh, and I got to know her a little bit before she died. And just, I'm so inspired by her theology um, and to keep giving and to keep fighting um, for equality. And um, I, got, I got to meet her just as a side note. Um, and before a few weeks before she died. And she said to me, you know, there's a Jewish school here in town. I sat on their board and helped help them through diversity education. Um, and so it just seems like not only am I here as a representative of the Jewish faith within the Catholic walls of the hospital, but she also was able to say, hey, I'm gonna speak as well. Um, and I'm gonna fight for, for what needs to be done. So. Saying all of that, um, I want to talk about a few different values that I see within our chaplains, uh, within our chaplaincy career and, and what it is that that looks like and how that correlates into our Jewish values and how, the, how all of that works together to form a well-rounded chaplain. Um, and so these four values that I'm going to speak about um, and their corresponding Jewish values um, that give me the lens in which I see the work that I do. So the first is that of listening. So listening is what a chaplain does with their whole body, right? It's not just the ears, it's the heart, it's the soul, it's the non-anxious presence that we bring to a situation. Um, and when I think of such listening, I think of the listening that we do for the Shema that of closing our eyes, concentrating on a verse, right? Shema Yisrael, and saying, looking into ourselves, finding the godliness, right? I said, we're all made in the image of God and how we can bring that out. How can we can deeply reflect on who we are and our spiritual selves and bring it into that moment. 
recognizing our connection to God in that moment. The next is compassion, how we work and what brings us to that moment, seeking compassion for the other that helps guide our active deep listening in this way where we're able to provide this pastoral presence. Um, and that seeks to that the, the value of Rachamim. And we're, sa we're said that God is this holiness, this holy being, this divine presence that is full of Rachamim and is full of compassion. And so just as God has compassion for all of us and for all of our beings, so too should we have compassion not only for ourselves, but also for one another. So being able to reflect that godliness and that holiness in our interactions while we are providing that pastoral support from ourselves to the other and back again, this never ending mirror um, full of compassion. The, ne the next one that I wanna talk about is intention. What is our intention that brings us to the moment? What's the intention for bringing us to this career? What is our intention in every day and every step that we are taking to bring this compassion, to bring this deep listening into one, one person's lives, our own lives and those of those who we encounter? Um, and so the Hebrew for that is, is kavana. And the intention can be likened to doing a good deed, right? Good intention is that important that it's as if we are doing a good deed. Lastly. I want to talk about respect. I want to talk about respect because I think today in today's lives, we're seeing a lot of um, conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in order for us to sit at that table, we need to have respect. It is one of the most foundational um, pieces of who we are, you know, in our lives. So when I talk about respect, I'm talking about kavod, that's the Hebrew, respect, and that's for one another, for one another's background, for one another's beliefs, cultures, um, religions, um, so that we can truly respect and bring compassion to those situations in which we can identify. So being able to um, address topics that come up that are related to diversity, equity, and inclusion come from deep listening, come from compassion, having a good intention, and treating one another with respect. So I say that all um, part, one of the things that I am currently working on here at our hospital is addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, as well as um, making sure that our staff is well aware of um, any cultural competencies that come up um, and being a voice for minorities who are, who are here in our hospital. I am so grateful to be here. And I know that we have a whole lot of questions that are coming up in the chat. So I'm gonna stop talking. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, especially for juggling a webinar and a visit from your system president at the same time. That's not really something we any of us expect to do on a daily basis. So thank you very much. <laughs> um, so we have a number of questions here. I have some and, the, and our uh, uh, audience has some here today. Let's ask the very first one that came in. This is from Aaron Wolf. 
Um, and I think this came in while Lynn was speaking. And it has to do with um, Jewish approaches to preparing those who have died of COVID. That's a really good question. Um, what is specific to that, Lynn? That's an excellent question. Um, in It's really um, something that all of the Hebrew Kedisha communities across the United States immediately asked. It's not so much that we understood quickly that the patient, the deceased person who we always refer to uh, using a term of uh, honor, which is the mate um, and even their Hebrew name, but the mate um, wasn't gonna give off COVID germs. We felt pretty confident from uh, professionals that even at the beginning, we, we kind of understood that that wasn't what was gonna happen. The, the biggest issue was the people who have to do the preparation have to be basically shoulder to shoulder in a very close proximal space. So all of those things that we know we're not supposed to do, right? We're not to be close and we could be gowned and we are, when we do the preparation, we're gowned and masked um, and we try to uh, uh, be very careful. So um, in the very, very beginning, um, one of the, considerations was to uh, first and foremost be uh, concerned for the living and those are the volunteers that are coming in to do this work and so if the if all that we are able to do is to place the mate in um, the there's the last thing we do is a shroud of uh, sheet and to place them in the sheet and place them in the um, around the uh, casket that is what some Hever Kadisha did sometimes in some communities and this was very interesting in my community I actually, um, despite the gray hair, I'm actually one of the youngest people on my favorite Kadisha, one of the stronger. So we lift the deceased into the into the casket. One of the issues was um, all of our members tended to be older that do this and they were higher at risk. So we had to make some very important immediate decisions to um, wrap the deceased by using the funeral directors who themselves weren't necessarily Jewish, but again, preservation of life, keeping those who are in this world still uh, healthy. And uh, there's more to say, I'll just add one other lovely custom that we learned about that happened in some communities. There's a series of extraordinary liturgy and prayers that are said during this process. And they would do what was called, they devised a spiritual uh, tahara, which is the Hebrew word for preparation for the deceased. And when the deceased was merely being wrapped in that sheet and placed in the casket with all the, without all the others, they still performed the words and the language of bringing the holiness of that sacred moment to the deceased. And so those provisions were done. Um, I will say at this point now, uh, we have gone back to doing full preparation. We are uh, utterly gowned and masked and, and under all sorts of PPE to keep us safe. And I made a note actually when you when you said something earlier, and I really appreciate this. And I think that a lot of our colleagues here today experience some version of this, no matter who they are, who they're serving, but you said, ask if they have a rabbi, because that can make a difference. Um, is there, with with the sort of different streams of Jewish thought, and I know that I don't have the right word for, I was once told, say their denominations. I don't know that that's actually accurate, but uh, you mentioned Orthodox, conservative, reform. Um, and I think that this is, you know, this is a great sensitivity that you're showing to see where sort of the folks you're serving might fall. I'm wondering if you could give us some examples of, I don't know, cross communal learning or service. You know, this person says, well, I, you know, I've had an Orthodox rabbi, but I haven't talked to them in 30 years. So what do I do now? Um, you know, if there is an identification like that, but that connection can't be made with a rabbi, is that, am I making sense in that question? <laughs> 
Um, I, you know, I, I, I would invite my colleagues to also offer an opinion, but I'll just tell you this morning, I met a new client um, who on the phone and describing her situation before I met her, explained that she was uh, had chosen to become Jewish, but did so under the auspices of the Orthodox community. And that's where her understanding and her faith and her uh, trajectory law, um, is. But she knew that I was the community chaplain of that she didn't have a choice. So I said, well, let's start with me and then I, maybe I can redirect you to some other resources. So I go out to meet her today to discover that that was true. That was how her, uh, her entry into Judaism came and I could look around her home and recognize various objects and things that it's the great thing about visiting with people in their homes. Um, but uh, she candidly said, but I've had to move away from that. And these are the reasons why. Um, so part of my job as a community chaplain is to uphold the dignity and honor of the individual for whatever situations that they're in. So I assured her that her Judaism was no less or no more fragile than it ever was for whatever denomination she fell in. I mean, there are lots of denominations actually out there, um, but that um, let's see what we can do to meet her needs in the moment. And, and that's where we started and we were able to uh, create a beautiful, beautiful uh, encounter and I'm looking forward to helping to support her forward. Um, and I, I would just be curious to see if either Jessica or Michelle have some thoughts on that. Um, I, I mean, just thinking about the streams of Judaism, um, I, I just want to note as a sidebar, though, it is its own rabbit hole that goes on forever is um, so there are streams of Judaism in this country that, you know, differ in terms of, I guess, presentation of practice and how rabbis are trained and also um, certainly theology and, a, and how people connect to what Lynn talked about, which is halakha, like the way of being in the world as a Jew. Um, but there's another group that we didn't talk about that I think approaches Judaism and has different ideas, which is Israelis. Um, Israelis in the United States, I think, have a different kind of view on um, what it means to be Jewish. And I'm not going to get into it, but I will say that that as its own level of complexity. And that's a different level of, I think, competency of working with the Jewish community is um, working with the diversity that are, you know, Israelis who live in this country. So that complicates it further, but it just, you know, lets people know that that is um, there for people to learn more about. I, th I think that um, at times the labels of denominations can um, pigeonhole people maybe into their belief system, into a perceived belief system. Um, I think I think it's more important um, instead of asking what denomination are you um, to ask or say, tell me about your Judaism. Um, tell me about your holidays. Tell me about your God, um, giving someone the opportunity to um, discuss what their beliefs are, what brings them meaning um, in all situations. I'll just chime in. I think, Jessica, thank you. That was beautiful. Um, I also do, a, 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 as part of some teaching that I do, is a conversation around what is it to be Jewish, religious Judaism versus cultural Judaism. And I'm not going to explain that, but that's also what we're tapping into. There are many people who are profoundly Jewish, but it's not per se a belief system. It's a lot bigger. It's a lot more. So it's a very, it's an engaging topic. It's very complex to answer. 
Jessica, let me ask you about your work, um, about your work specifically with non-Jewish patients and families, because Lynn and Michelle have given us a really deep look into the work that they're doing. But I, I'm just imagining here you are in St. Louis in this in a, a hospital named Cardinal Glennon. This is, you know, this is super Catholic. And suddenly a Jewish chaplain comes in. How does that conversation go sometimes? So it's really interesting, Michael. Uh, before I came to Cardinal One, and sometimes I would be asked about my denomination, which they were not referring to my Jewish denomination. Um, and I would explain that I was Jewish. While being here, um, patients and families do not ask me about my religion. So while there are people on staff um, who know that I am a rabbi and will call me rabbi. Um, for the most part, and I think that this is just part of um, part of my training, I am trained as an interfaith chaplain. Um, and I'm trained to go into rooms to meet everyone where they're at. So it's not it's not often that somebody would look to me and say, hey, wait, not quite not quite what I thought. And I get that, but sometimes for a different reason. Um, when I say that I'm the chaplain, I think for me, um, one of the biggest things that I had to learn in um, providing spiritual support for um, all faiths is prayer. Um, and I say I had to learn prayer. I, I know that one of my teachers who taught me about prayer is um, on this webinar. Um, and I remember sitting with her um, in Tvila in day school, um, and she taught me prayer, um, and prayer in a sense of what it was like to be Jewish and pray. What I had to learn um, is I needed to figure out for me how I wanted to pray in spontaneous fashion, which was both respectful to myself, and respectful to the person who I was praying with. So I believe strongly in not saying a, any prayer or anything in my prayer that I don't believe because I wanted to be truthful. I wanted to be earnest. I wanted to be respectful and compassionate. So um, figuring, in, figuring out what my mindset was going to be when I pray that can be respectful to each person. So Uh, a question just came in. I think this is a good question because Lynn, you mentioned specifically uh, that uh, the vidui is not the same as, you know, sort of anointing of the sick or whatever that you might find in some Christian liturgical traditions. I think that a lot of times we are just inclined to try to find analogs in systems that are not ours. We see something and say, oh, that's kind of like this, not necessarily the case. So Patrick says, are there any things that a non-Jewish chaplain should try to be mindful of or avoid or gravitate to out of respect, you know, sort of maybe faux pas that you have seen in your career of non-Jewish chaplains work, or right, non-Jewish chaplains working with Jewish patients or families, and they think, oh yeah, I know exactly what that is because it's just like this. Um, any, any things to, to avoid or, or watch out for? I, I can, I, Lynn, is it okay if I jump in? I mean, like the first thing that comes to mind, which is almost like obvious to me, but may not be obvious to others, because I know that when we get into prayer, 
um, we have like a sort of routine of how we pray or, you know, everyone kind of develops their own sort of style of prayer when praying with patients. And I know that for many people, it is like hitting the send button when you say in Jesus's name, we pray. <laughs> and that's like hitting the send button. And I can appreciate that as an, as someone who was trained as an interfaith chaplain, that, that for some people is so super important, but I'm going to ask that you refrain from saying things like that. Um, I do also think that it can be triggering for um, Jews just because I've experienced it on the other end of encountering Christian chaplains. I was previously a hospital chaplain is um, asking people about if they're about their souls and if they're concerned about them. Um, I don't think that Jews are very much like here and now. I think Jessica gave a great framework about asking about one's Judaism or faith or God. Um, but soul is something that we believe in, but it's not something that I would say most Jews I encounter worry too much about. So um, I think that that will lean on. I've seen that sort of lean on a sort of, it hits a trigger of feeling like someone might be trying to convert you. Um, and move you away from your own faith and culture. Um, so I think that that is not something that one needs to necessarily try to explore with someone. I don't know if my colleagues have other thoughts. Um, I, I think uh, there's some stuff in the chat that might be helpful. One of our colleagues, uh, Robert Tabak, is putting some um, useful information there. Uh, I would say um, like we would with all faith traditions, I also work with non-Jewish patients in a variety of other places that I work is never go in with an assumption by virtue of a title. Um, Jessica is absolutely right. You need to ask them what it means to them. Um, and I'll just add um, from a Jewish, a Jewish patient perspective, we are not comfortable Jews, culturally speaking. Chaplains um, are not an area of comfort. Um, uh, the, the name chaplain doesn't come from, uh, it comes from the Christian world. So um, when a chaplain in general goes into the room of a Jewish patient, often there's a little bit of, you're in here to convert me, please don't be here. And what I wanna tell all of, all of us is um, introduce yourself again, <laughs> say your name and just say, I'm, I'm just here to listen to you. Um, that, that is a cultural piece that's not so much about what you could be a faux pas, it's just that you've walked in the room and a misperception of, of the beautiful work that um, I would like to say that uh, trained chaplains do provide um, because of a long history uh, um, that, that, you, that the Jewish tradition has had to, to live through. I, I really appreciate uh, Lynn and Michelle, your comments, both of you, especially because I think from my understanding, this really gets at some of the, the most fundamental aspects of contemporary chaplaincy. You know, Michelle, you mentioned a chaplain asking about the state of someone's soul. That just is, <laughs> for so many people, that is rightly a non-starter, unless the patient wants to talk about that. Um, just not an appropriate place to begin, no matter the sort of configuration of chaplain and patient. It's just not it's just not a good place to start. Uh, so thank you, thank you both for that. And thank everyone for being here today. We're right here at the top of the hour and I wanna be respectful of everyone's time. 
uh, Lynn, Michelle, Jessica, thank you for your wisdom and your expertise and your work. Um, I think that a lot of us have learned a great deal here. I know from the questions that just this is this is immediately useful for a lot of people. So thank you very much. Uh, keep an eye out, everyone, for the recording, which you'll get in the next couple of days. Um, and be in touch if you have questions. Thank you all. Have a great afternoon. Bye-bye.